Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Finney, and good morning, North Sound Church. It's so good to see you this morning. Glad you chose to worship with us. Special greetings to my friend Sally Chaco, who is with us, Sally, and Jacob have been dear friends over the years. Jacob went to be with the Lord several years ago, and it's been a, a big loss in, uh, in our lives. Uh, but uh, we are grateful, Sally, that you're here this morning. And welcome to each one of you. So glad that you chose to, uh, to join us today. We have a uh, celebration we have to recognize, and that is Jim and Mako's 50th wedding anniversary. Jim and Mako, stand up. (laughs) Married 50 years and 45 years of marital bliss. Uh, (laughs) Something something like that. Well, we are going to turn our attention to the word here in just a moment. And um, I want to uh, share with you uh, a illustration or a story that Stuart Briscoe enjoyed. Stuart Briscoe, uh, how many of you have heard of the name Stuart Briscoe? Yeah, so he is a pastor, a British uh, pastor. And uh, he uh, came to Milwaukee and has been there for many, many years as pastor in Milwaukee. And uh, he, he, loved, uh, he loved this story, and, and I do too. It was about a, a pastor who preached a sermon, and a woman came up to him on the way out after the service that morning and said, thank you for your sermon. It was really good. And with the false modesty that most pastors have, she, uh, he said uh, to her, well, it, it really wasn't me, you know, it was God speaking through me. And she said, well, it wasn't that good. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're going to look at a very important passage for men. It's the creation of women. And uh, did I get that right, guys? No, you better do better, especially if you're sitting with your woman, you better do better than that. Yes, okay. So we're going to talk about marriage. Sean passed a video on to me this week at my request. A friend had sent it to him. And... uh, I showed it to Barb. She, you know, she's my, my filter before. I know some of you didn't think I had a filter, but I do. And so uh, I ran it by Barb, and she suggested that this video may be more of a male perspective. Um, so let me know what, what you think, whether it, whether it is or not. A male perspective on marriage. You need marriage to need an AA. My friends ask me, like, how's your marriage going? It's one day at a time, man. <laughs> I didn't say anything wrong today, but I don't know what tomorrow's gonna bring. Hi, my name is Adam and I'm a married man. It's been six months since my last decision. I felt the urge to have an opinion the other day, but... Thank God my sponsor came over and we sat down till that feeling went away. 
Okay, what is that? Do you think that's more of a male perspective, ladies? What do you think? <laughs> well, last week we talked about the creation of human beings. The creation of human beings from dust. And I mentioned that in the Ash Wednesday service this year, Pastor Robin placed uh, dust on your foreheads and said the words, from dust you've come and to dust you shall return. And uh, a young, uh, young man uh, was wondering about this. Apparently he had been to an Ash Wednesday service and he said to his mom, Mom, is it true that we're created from dust? And she said, yes. And he says, and is it true, Mom, that we're going to return to dust one day? And she said, yes. She said, why are, why are you asking, son? And he said, well, I looked under my bed and somebody's either coming or going. <laughs> well, shall we move on? Yeah, okay. So we're going to talk today about a subject that at one time uh, was pretty straightforward. In fact, Prior to, I don't know, 25 years ago, 20 years ago, um, it was pretty straightforward going back in history, almost as far as history begins. But it has changed, and we're going to uh, share some of the background uh, of this passage. And that has to do with marriage in a way that has made news of late, particularly in the last 20 years or so. So, we may struggle with the decisions of our culture, a culture that we live in, but we are a nation that people dream about being a part of. And so while we're going to talk about a challenge within our culture this morning, I, I want to set it off by just reminding us of just how incredibly blessed we are as citizens of the United States of America. There's a picture that Deb is going to put up of folks lining up for visas outside the U.S. consulate in Chennai, India. And this is, if you've had an opportunity to travel overseas, this is not unusual. People want to come to America, and we think about all the challenges we have, and it's sometimes in disgust, say, we're going to move to Canada. Right, Steve? Uh, but but um, the, the, the fact of the matter is we are incredibly blessed. And so we live in a pluralistic society. Pluralistic society means that we enjoy freedom no matter what our national origin is, what our race may be, what our creed, our religion may be, what our relative wealth may be as citizens of the United States. We can express ourselves within this pluralistic culture. It's interesting to me how much Christianity has had to do with the development of the United States, including even up to the civil rights movement. I'm going to show you a brief clip of, uh, uh, of um, Martin Luther King Jr. I believe this was shot uh, the evening before he was killed, assassinated the next morning. And what I want you to see in the original civil rights movement, the deep effect that uh, faith had to do with the pursuit of rights for people. Let's watch together. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. 
because I've been to the mountaintop. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. I think most preachers find themselves, uh, can I use the word envious of the incredible communicator, incredible skills that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had. So we celebrate being citizens of the United States and we celebrate the pluralism. But we need to recognize that while we tolerate and affirm the freedoms that we all enjoy, it doesn't mean that we're all right, that everyone is right, that everyone's belief corresponds to truth. Many of us as Americans believe different things and believing different things, they can't all be right. They can't all be true. College professors get frustrated at times with new students who are coming in who want to be so very careful about evaluating the perspective of others. They, they don't want to be judgmental. Brian Talbot, an instructor of philosophy at the University of Colorado Boulder, says this. He recalls a young woman in the philosophy of law class who all but declared the class a waste of time. The law, she said, should be whatever lawmakers think it should be. He says there's hundreds of years of thought on the law and what law should be, and this student wanted to switch to a debate over whether we should be even be having a debate. But the truth is, some beliefs are right, correct, true, and some beliefs are wrong. There's an interesting verse in 2 Thessalonians, and I had kind of forgotten about this expression uh, until working on the, the sermon, and it says this, it says we're saved through sanctification by the Holy Spirit and something else. Verse 13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in truth, belief in truth. But it seems we're afraid in these times in which we live to articulate truth. And even for us as followers of Jesus Christ, we're hesitant to engage the culture in speaking truth. And here's how the logic of that works. Ryan read for us this morning the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee 
encourages us to be humble people who lean into our own sin, who confess our own sin humbly before the Lord. And so what we sometimes take away from that as it relates to our culture is we take away from that the idea that we shouldn't judge other people because we ourselves are sinners. So what right do we have to judge whether someone is articulating or living the truth when we ourselves see ourselves somewhat hypocritically as holding to, to values that we may not be living up to. Sin is sin, but there are in fact two kinds of relationship to sin. And I hope most of us fall in this first category of sin. It's the perspective on sin that recognizes the truth of God's word and his will for our lives and the fact that we fall short of full obedience. And when we fall short, this first category of sinners, when we fall short, we affirm 1 John 1, 9 that says, if we confess our sins, a part of that process we know from scripture is repentance, which means we say that we have done wrong and doing wrong, we're walking in one direction and repentance is to turn and walk in the other direction, physically as it were, walk in the other direction. If we confess our sins, if we repent of our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. We recognize that sin and we turn away from our sin and ultimately, we live in trusting that God is the one who knows the difference between good and evil, and we need to trust him. The other category of sin sees this differently. It describes those who have eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they know what good is for them and for them alone. They deny God's truth and obedience to it in their pursuit of what they think is best. They live in sin, and they call it good. They affirm voting on morality or figuring it out for themselves. The world is upside down. They resist repentance. If they have any spiritual sensitivity, they say God loves them the way they are. He made them this way, so there's no need to change. They have eaten their fill from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and need no instruction. Anyone who confronts their sin is seen as being judgmental and hypocritical because, after all, they're sinners too. And so, friends, there's a category air of sin here. It's true that we're all sinners, but one group admits to the sin, confesses and repents, and works to overcome it through obedience to Christ, which we call discipleship. And the other group basks in the practice of what breaks the heart of God. They're willfully disobedient, following their own ways, and create an upside-down culture of death. Good is bad, bad is good. As Isaiah says in chapter 5, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So where do we get the objective criteria 
that tells us what God's will is for us and whether or not we find ourselves in the first group or the second group. Well, clearly we find truth, what we believe to be absolute truth, found in the scriptures. Now, some in the second category want to say they are biblical Christians, but there seems to be an inevitable slippage as to what that means. The first group affirms the Bible as the authoritative word of God. It's the rule of faith and practice. The entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation is inspired, and our task as his followers is to study the Bible and to know it and to apply it to our lives. The second group almost inevitably sees the Bible as a good book that contains God's word, but we need to determine what applies to us and what's appropriate in the culture in which we live. Now, as we approach our text this morning, the first group says that this passage reflects God's will for marriage. It reflects a time period before the fall in Paradise, where the will of the Lord is revealed. Now, you may recall that last week we talked about the fact that the first two chapters of Genesis reveal God's will in paradise. And when we come all the way back to Revelation and we have a description of the future, we once again have God's description of what life will be like in paradise. And between those two is, is our story, and it's the story of sin, it's the story of redemption, it's the story of creation, God's love for us, and God returning to us. When we say the Lord's Prayer, as we did this morning, we say, your kingdom come, and then the next expression says what that means. Your kingdom come means that God's will is done here on earth as it is in heaven. That's what it means when we pray it. And God's will for marriage is revealed in these instructions in paradise. The second group sees it as reflecting on the practice of Israel, but not necessarily God's will moving forward. So let's look at our text together now from Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at least is bone of my bones. This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So God sees that Adam is alone and God lives in community and he invites us into community. And the term helper here to refer to woman is not a demeaning term in relation to man. In fact, the term is actually used of God as our helper as well. The English Standard Version says the helper is one who is fit for him. And the Hebrew is helpful here. The Hebrew says, like opposite him, 
like opposite him, meaning complementary, like him in the sense of being a human being, but opposite him in terms of gender or sex. And so what's important to note here is that God gave human beings a mission, and that mission would be impossible for man alone, or the mission would be impossible for woman alone, It's their two very different natures that allows the mission that God has called us to to be accomplished. To put it in grossly functional terms, they have different parts, and both parts are needed to fulfill that particular mission. I don't know if you have heard um, the beautiful words from four centuries ago from a commentator known as Matthew Henry who wrote in about 1708. He said, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. In verse 22, we see that God fashioned woman and brought her to man and It may seem a little formal to us how this took place, but it was interesting to me when I think about uh, Indian culture, uh, and uh, Pastor Finney was in the first service and talked about Indian culture and the fact that for us, with sort of what we call love marriages, it's a little different, but it's not unusual in Indian culture for parents to identify the spouse of their child, or at least a potential spouse, and present that much the same way as God presented her here. And we see here that the husband um, is to forsake his father and mother, but it actually doesn't mean forever. It's kind of hyperbole in the fact that his commitment is shifting to his wife And in Hebrew culture, there remained, as in many cultures in the world today, great responsibility for one's parents. Did you hear that, Sean? So we read in verse 24 that they had a one flesh relationship. This was on one level, obviously, a sexual relationship, but it meant so much more as well. It was spiritual and it was emotional. They lived with integrity. There was no hierarchy. There was no sin. There was no fear of exploitation of the other. And as we read in verse 25, they were naked. They could be completely open with each other. They had nothing to hide. So this represents the continuation of God's commitment to community. God lived in community, and he invites us into that community. He invites us to form community with a partner and have that community grow. Now, some folks are single by calling, and some folks have just found that that are, that are the circumstances of their life. I remember years ago talking to Barb's aunt, who uh, was a single woman, and she had felt during her life badly about not having children, and then she commented on the encouragement of Isaiah 54, verse 1, and I, I share this with you all as well as a word of encouragement for those who don't have children. Sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing, and cry aloud, you have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. 
we all have an opportunity to have offspring one way or another in our lives. No one less than Paul exalts the power of the single life to serve the Lord. So as we kind of land the airplane here this morning, I want to suggest now what this means for our lives. We talked a couple of months ago about how we study the Bible. We talked about exegesis, what did it mean at the time. We talk about hermeneutics, how do we apply it to our lives. Well, I think the first thing we do is to build strong marriages. We need to build strong marriages, God's will for us. We need to advocate that marriage is the union of one man and one woman who create a home as the best environment for the raising of children. We need to work to see that sexual freedom does not trump religious freedom. As people of faith, we should not have to compromise what we believe is God's will revealed in our holy book. It's part of American pluralism. Fourthly, we treat those who see it differently than us with love and respect. I can't emphasize how important this is today. We treat those who see it differently than us with love and respect. First of all, with love, how Jesus embraced with his words the woman caught in adultery. With respect, recognizing that God in fact died for the sins of all of us. With knowledge. Russell Moore says that we need to expect sexual refugees who discover sex outside God's will does not work out for the long haul. This week I came across a, 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 a book, um, not yet published in the United States, but published in the UK. I, I wish I could remember the name of it this morning, but it was a, a secular book, and the secular book was, the title I think is something like After the Sexual Revolution, but Basically, what this individual, this woman pointed out was that we've had the sexual revolution for something like 50 years, and the outcome of it has not been the fulfillment of human beings that it was expected to be, and that there is great loneliness and grief and pain as a result of fractured relationships that have been a part of this. And the most amazing thing, not coming from a preacher, but coming from a secular writer, is that her solution to the problems of the sexual revolution and what it has done in our culture is monogamous marriage. How do we treat those who see this differently as followers of Jesus? I was moved this week when I saw um, a brief video. Um, I called Barb and I said, you gotta, you gotta see this. It, it was a metaphor for me of the terrible strains, national strains that we are experiencing, the, the yelling from the far right to the far left and the far left to the far right and um, the fact that the statistics are telling us that so many Democrats don't just disagree with Republicans, but they hate them, and so many Republicans hate Democrats. What have we come to? 
I want you to see this metaphor from a little league ball game where a young man throws a pitch that hits another young man and something very beautiful happens even in the midst of this conflict of two teams each striving to win. Let's watch together. shaken up right now because of what he did. And look at Zay Jarvis. This is such great sportsmanship. He wants him to know that it's okay, that he'll be fine. Hey, Bob. Look at me. Look at me. You're all right. Amazing. You're all right. Look at me. What a stud right there. Zay Jarvis. So Jarvis walks to the mound, <clears throat> excuse me, and embraces Shelton, who was reeling at the damage he could have wrought. And Isaiah says to him, hey, you're doing great, let's go. Jarvis had just been hurt himself. He saw someone suffering and tried to alleviate it. It was a beautiful moment, and Matt Labash writes in slack tide he says watching someone feel genuinely remorseful for what they did even if it was only a mistake was strangely refreshing we're unaccustomed to that we've become unaccustomed to all of this because public life is no longer populated by people committing quiet acts of heroism and gallantry and graciousness we've instead become acclimated to boorish jackasses stoking grievance claiming victimhood and pinning the blame on others when they should be assuming the blame themselves. That's how we're to treat those that disagree with us. The fifth thing is that we need to contribute our perspective on the nature of human flourishing in the public square. If it's true, it's not only true for followers of Jesus, it's true for everyone it leads to the flourishing of our communities and our lives. And sixthly, we remain committed to the scriptures as the word of God because what we believe makes all the difference in the world. Recently, I read a disturbing article from Christian Today in the UK and quoting a study by John Hayward. It says the Turn of the next century will witness the extinction of the Church of England according to a new analysis of church-going trends. Other Anglican provinces could die even sooner, namely the Church in Wales, the Scottish Episcopal Church in 2043, and the Episcopal Church in the U.S. in 2055. 
Hayward argues that it is beliefs, not actions, that are the source of the problem. When congregations ask for my advice on why they decline, I first ask them what they believe, not what they do, because actions follow from beliefs. So as I close this morning, I want to put this in perspective. As biblical Christians, we sometimes feel like we're under attack. We feel religious liberty is under attack, and we are concerned for the values that we hold, that we believe are biblical values that seem to be constantly in flux and changing. But I want to give you just a contrast to think about before I close this morning. I want you to consider the Christians in Nigeria. Since the advent of attacks by jihadist terrorist groups, Boko Haram, to be the uh, on, uh, excuse me, and to be honest, even long before then, from other Islamists who still commit atrocities, no Christian can know for sure that if they go to church, they will be alive to return home again. In 2012, Nigeria alone accounted for over 60% of Christians killed globally. The situation's not improved. Reverend O told how he had been leading a service of Holy Communion when his church was attacked by Muslims from the local mosque. I don't like telling this story because it makes me cry, he admitted, but added that he thought it was important for us to hear. He continued that Muslims had left their mosques, rounded the church where they began stabbing and slashing at people with knives and committing all kinds of attacks. He said, we tried to gather up the children and get them out or hide them. His voice faltered and he was silent for a moment as a tear rolled down his cheek. He said, my daughter was among them. Then he asked the people, do you want me to close the service so you can escape? After pausing to remove his glasses and wipe his tear-filled eyes, Reverend O continued, they said to me, you taught us that Jesus is worthy of dying for. This may be our last communion. We will take it and die. Faith McDonald says, as we all sat in silence, grieving along with Reverend O, our other guest, Reverend M, revealed by some miracle they were saved. Reverend O's congregation did not die that day, thanks be to God. And so, friends, when we feel under attack for articulating biblical truth, let's remember those who really suffer for their faith. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning for the blessing of your presence. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that your word is truly a lamp to our feet and a light to our pathway. Lord, help us to have wisdom both in the articulation of biblical truth and in the way we live our lives in relation to those who see it differently, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.